If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. This is LA Not So Confidential. Welcome back, everyone. So I'm Dr. Shiloh. If you haven't been with us before, and I'm here with... Uh, Dr. Scott, welcome back to season two, episode one, and a huge... Okay, we're not going to apologize. keep apologizing. No, no, no. Hold on, but it's different this time. (laughs) We're not not apologizing for the length between the episodes. We're apologizing for not letting people know that it was the end of season one. Okay, I'll take it. All right. But I really so, want that to be the last apology. Yeah, we do Can too. We do that? Um, I wish I wish most of you could see us right now because we are in the most awkward f- awkward position in my my luxurious Hollywood bedroom. Almost sitting on each other's laps. Almost. It's because we're trying to figure out this garage man <laughs> thing with wonderful microphones from Blue Yeti. But hey, guys at Blue Yeti, can you just freaking come down and tell me how to do this? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, here's what we got to work with. Welcome back. Yeah. So um, I feel like we have to play catch up a little bit. Oh, yeah. We got um, a lot of catching up. God, I've been... Telling you about your summer. I know. Did you have a bitch in summer? (laughs) Um, Just watching a lot of stuff, reading a lot of stuff, listening to a lot of stuff, which is nice to like catch up on all of that. Um, I've had to break up some of the true crime stuff. Like I've been going back and watching like episodes of Glee, (laughs) um, Love. It starts to weigh down on you, especially when we 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 also work that stuff. 40 right. hours a week. So Yeah. Um, but I did. I went back and I read The Voyeur's Motel. Oh, you read um, the whole book? Or yes. The, oh, okay. So um, it was it, it was basically like publishing the guy's diary. Wow. So um, I, I feel like the book and the documentary go very well together. I, Is, I would suggest reading it. Okay. So there's well more information? More information, but I think the documentary, you also get more information about the subject, about yeah. the voyeur. Well, you also get um, to see him, visually. and he is such a character. Yes. I mean, we talk about that in the episode last season, that he is, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, it's almost, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with no no disrespect, but he's such a, such a caricature, it's almost like Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a, really a broad um 
type that you're yeah. like, oh, wow, that's a real person. Right, right. And I think you pick up on things in the documentary, like on about his wife that isn't necessarily portrayed very well in the book and just kind of back and forth. I think they go together pretty well. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I'm currently reading No Stone Unturned, which is um, all about forensic sciences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's nice to kind of get away from some of the more psychological things and just... Um, crime scene investigation um and then as far as stuff that i've been listening to um podcasts of course are my best friend on the way to work nordic true crime is one that i love i love everything scandinavian yeah it's kind of like a i've been there a couple times um and i just love everything about it and i feel like true crime or crime dramas from that region are really good well the girl with the dragon tattoo that is like series. is, is sure. riveting and um, the Brit the Virgin of version of the bridge came originally from there. Oh right, right. Um, so yeah, there's there's just so much good storytelling, but this is all um, true crime um, from the Scandinavian regions. Just it's great, it's great, it's really dark. It kind of reminds me of like that Pacific Northwest. Right feel here in the states um what was the one with al pacino um insomnia oh insomnia which i know is actually more that's alaska that's northern alaska because remember it's 24 hour day when he's but yes you're right but like if those being in like finland or iceland or something high up same same latitude yeah um and of course, I want to mention our new BFFs from oh, yeah. Hollyweird Paranormal. Um, so they had actually cited some of our research in um, an episode they did on cults. And so, of course, I've listened to all of their stuff and just can't wait for new stuff to come out. And we also just have, came from Dupar's at the, the yeah. farmer's market having breakfast with them, which was yeah. an absolute delight. And I never used that word, but like I could not... I was commenting as we were walking away, like, wow, the, yeah. like the, the energy and, and humor and intelligence that both of them have is going to be so much fun to work with. Yeah. So we're, we have some things um, in the mix that we're trying to plan and hopefully have some good stuff for you guys. But if you guys aren't listening to them, please do. Um, their podcast is great. They follow true crime here in the Hollywood area and any sort of aftermath that has a paranormal feel to it that's a follow-up on the story, they kind of marry those two, two things together, and it's really and neat. And do some pretty great research, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm really <laughs> impressed by the the depth mm-hmm. that they go into, which mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. And that was me hitting a spring. I'm not going to... I'm <laughs> not going to... laughs. I know. I'm sorry. I'm not going to... It's very uncomfortable I'm right now. I'm not going to edit that out. So there you go. Um, so, yeah, just been diving into a lot of stuff. What, what about you? Uh, nothing. No, Wait, um, I traveled a little bit this summer. I did a, a, I mean, I traveled and saw family. Um, I have been doing sort of, I go, I hibernate during the summer. I, in Southern California, one thing we should be talking about folks, which is directly related to this week's episode is the seasons here are so strange in Southern California. Like we have May gray. Okay. Um, yeah. We have May gray, then we have June gloom, mm-hmm. and then we go into July, and it starts. It's like pleasant sometimes. It's not so pleasant. Then it gets hot, and then by the time August gets around, I, I don't have the energy to do anything. So, <laughs> so you ask what I've been doing. Right. I have been marathoning the entire series of The Strain, which was a, is a oh yeah, 
And I'll, I mean, it's not really our thing because this is it's a science fiction horror fantasy thing. But what I find fascinating, in the same way that I find The Walking Dead fascinating, mm-hmm. is it's about what people do under duress. And that, from sure. a psych perspective, is fascinating to me. It's like, okay, so here's another sort of apocalyptic vision of what could happen. And, you know, if you, even if you take out all the vampire stuff and the sort of uh, horror fantasy stuff, there are elements of this, like watching, oh, well, yeah, that's how you could take down the grid. That's uh-huh. how you could take down communication. Uh-huh. That completely makes sense. And then all the chaos afterwards. So I, well, I, but it, I, maybe it'll be a good time for you to jump back into the walking dead because supposedly this coming season that's going to start in October, I think it always starts around Halloween. Um, but there's not really conflict. It's more of this rebuilding. Oh, okay. It's, it's supposed to be a year and a half after the whole Negan thing. Perfect. So it might be, you know, psychologically I like that stuff too. Like how are people really, you know, either connecting with humanity again or, um, rebuilding these communities. Cause I, I gave up, I don't even know, remember which, which season it was. Might've been season six. I gave up after sort of the fall of Alexandria when, oh, ne- when okay. Negan wow. came into the picture Yeah, because that, you know, just f- f- from my perspective, um, Jeff, I think his name is Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He's mm-hmm. a great actor, but the scene chewing just, yeah. I was just tired of it. Yeah. Like, tell yeah. me a story. I don't want to see this particular storyline. So I'll make a deal with you. I don't want to watch those episodes. So over our next meal, we'll, we'll get the Wikipedia episode list. You can, okay. you can tell it to me in a story. So I don't have to, have to see him <laughs> chewing scenery. Sounds good. I'll and catch then I'll you pick up. up. Okay. okay. But yeah. So, um, what, uh, Oh, I know what, what I was going to lead into is that pertinent to today's episode is, this is also a really dangerous time of year right. for Southern California. And unfortunately, it's not only in Southern California. The fires are everywhere in our country right now mm-hmm. because of um, climate conditions and uh, overgrowth and water. There's tons of factors that overlap, but you know, undeniably, the climate change plays a big part of it. Right, right. Yeah, fire season is one of our seasons, and this one has been... Really bad. Yeah. Um, just we have the um, one of the fires up north is now the worst in state history, and um, as you guys can probably hear that I'm like sniffling a lot. My allergies are going crazy because I live close enough to where I wake up every morning and there's ash on my right. car, and um, so there's down in Riverside and San Bernardino counties that we have the holy fire going right now. So. Um, yeah, there's a lot and it's, there's, you know, not jumping too quickly into our topic, but a lot of these really big fires have been linked back to arson. Um, and so, you know, that puts a whole nother spin and element on it that we're definitely going to touch on today. Yeah. So building on that, um, you know this this week's episode is on uh, arson, uh, which is you know when I was telling you this as we were prepping for the episode, I actually sent you a really nasty text because <laughs> because I, I'm so overwhelmed with things that I am passionately interested in. I never I actually never had any interest in this at all because well, it's so destructive. I thought the same thing. Um, I just really had no interest. Like, and we we know even though. I mean, just uh, for those of you who listened to us before, you know a little bit of our, our backgrounds. Um, 
but there's a sort of the there's a handful of diagnoses in the DSM that are pretty much like mm, that's black and white. Yeah, there's not really a lot of treatment for that. Right, and uh, so when we talk about hardcore hardwired pedophilia, it's like there's only very a very slender narrow window of treatment options available, and arson falls into that too. Right, and we're so- going to talk about why. It is that way. Yeah. If if you guys are familiar with, you know, obviously that there's a sex offender registry. There's really, in California, there's only three registries. There's a sex offender registry. There's a registry for repeat drug offenders. And there's an arson registry. So I think, you know, when I was kind of reflecting back on this too, that arson has never been one of those crimes or compulsive behaviors that I've dove into at an interest level so much. Um but to sit back and go, oh, there's a registry for that. That that kind of gives you some context of. So these people are dangerous for their life, um, and that's why we need to keep track of where they're at. Right. So that's essentially what a registry tells you. And yet, even so, as as we started dive, as I started diving further, you know, you gave me like, hey, look this up, and, and mm-hmm. let's build on that. It goes into it's Alice down the rabbit hole because. Yeah. You, yeah. While we're talking about that, it's a specific diagnosis for with a very window, narrow window of treatment. We're going to be talking about one of the perpetrators in the most recent um, in the Holy Fires mm-hmm. that meets some of the criteria and yet doesn't meet some of the other ones. And we'll we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. But yeah. to start off with, um, so that's our our catch up. Um, we wanted to start off with a little bit of talking about the underpinnings of uh, pyromania, which is not necessarily, let's see if we can, let me let's see if I can do a syllogism. Um, I'm not sure that every arsonist is a pyromaniac, right? but every pyromaniac has the potential to become an arsonist. Sure. That's, and that's not in the DSM. That's no, no, no st- research uh, stats, base. research yeah. base. That's just me putting that together. But, you know, as we watched and delved into all this material, that's one of the things that I've yeah. come to notice. But I want to, as be- because I'm, because <laughs> I was an English major in my undergrad, um, and because instead of Grimm's fairy tales, I was raised by my, my two lovely sisters read Edith Hamilton's mythology to me growing up. Uh, as I was going to bed, I was always fascinated with the myth of Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And so coming from Greek mythology, um, prior to the gods, there was the race of the elder gods called the Titans. Prometheus was sort of seen as, he had a multiple, multi-dimensional character um, and in a way was known to be a trickster in the way that uh, Loki in Norse mythology is seen. And a trickster plays an important role in sort of, if we're going to approach this from um, Jungian or narrative psychology is about the, the role that people play, the role that these drives in us play. So this Prometheus was seen as a trickster and, you know, prior to man's creation, Earth was a paradise. The gods, the the mythological creatures kind of pranced around and had this sort of Eden-like experience. And then Prometheus felt like, and Prometheus also means forethinking. It's thinking forward. He had a brother named Epimethus who only thought backwards. So if you only think forward, there's good, th- the good things and bad things. If you only think backward, there's bad things and good things. 
But Prometheus decides that he's going to create man out of clay. He creates man. Man is very primitive and not able to move forward. So he decides, you know, the thing that's really going to make this work is giving them fire. Because fire is power. Right. So he takes a reed from the river. And as Apollo flies across the sky in his chariot with his wheel being the sun, he reaches up and he lights a spark from Apollo's wheel. Oh, okay. The chariot wheel. And he brings it down and he gives it to man. And the gods, I mean, they were pissed off. It's like (laughs) fire is holy. Fire is power. It is ours. It is secret. It is mystery. You did not have the right to do this. And he's like, hey, it was just time. It's time for them to progress. Just stirring things up. Right. And, of course, the punishment, unfortunately, was that Zeus took Prometheus, chained him to a rock, and then sent an an immortal eagle to every morning come and devour his liver. So the eagle would rip into him, eat his liver, and then fly away. And, of course, being a titan and immortal, it's going to grow back and he will heal. And so he has to be tortured again the next day. It's like Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. And interestingly enough, how this ties in, I think, fascinating in a fascinating manner, is that the liver is, was, has been seen traditionally for thousands of years and by the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians. The liver was the seat of emotions. Wow, interesting. Which, interestingly enough, is today is even it's, mm-hmm. it's seen that way because uh, there's a lot of chemical reactions that mm-hmm. are that change the composition of the liver metabolism, sure. depending on our emotional state. Right. So, there's where fire came from. There's also I, I hooked into this really incisive uh, posting by Natalie Wolchover about sort of the the psychological motivation of our draw to fire. And she interviewed David, Daniel Fessler, who's an evolutionary anthropologist at University of California, LA. And he has conducted research uh, on adults' fascination with fire. I, I love that there are researchers out there doing this because I oh, would have yeah. never thought to research that particular thing. But think of like how just intoxicating it is to sit down and watch a fire. And there's a reason why. Tell me all about okay. it. <laughs> so there's a reason. The reason why is because it depends on whether or not you needed to use fire for survival as a child. So if you grew up in a rural area mm-hmm. and you were used to setting a fire in the hearth at home for winter, or you went out camping and you set a fire or you, you know, fire had something to do with your day, day to day life, which is not so common anymore in right. modern life, but like cooking and right. warmth and basic needs. So that's where we see the real difference is that people who have never seen fire as necessity for survival have more curiosity, more fascination and more draw to fire so I think we need to separate that from the relaxation that comes from people sitting in front of a fire. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a chilly mm-hmm. night. Let's let's put a fire in the right. fireplace. But this, is the, this seems to be the kernel of how people get fascinated, curious, which you and I know can move into um, yeah. over-fascinations, sure. you know, but like that, to a paraphilia. You know, with these fires going on and, you know, we have like... Whenever there's a natural disaster in California, or not even natural disaster, when it rains, our wall-to-wall news coverage of weather is, like, so intense because any change is yeah. news. Um, 
But my husband and I were watching the news coverage of the Holy Fire, and he's like, why do I like just sitting here and watching the, like, even through the television? And yeah, I mean, we can just watch news footage of it, and it's so interesting, and it's so destructive, and people's lives are being ruined. But, you know, you see one of those little, like, fire tornadoes, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that looks like a special effect from a movie. It's so crazy. So, yeah, Fessler goes on to say that, you know, that he believes that humans have evolved special mechanisms that they're dedicated to controlling sort of the understanding that fire is crucial to survival. So, I mean, he's got some stats to back it up. I think it's interesting. But because most Westerners no longer learn how to start, maintain, or use fire during childhood, we instead wind up with this fascination, this curious attraction Mm -hmm. to it. So his preliminary findings found out that humans are not universally fascinated by fire. Instead, that the fascination is a consequence of inadequate experience with fire during developmental period. So that okay to me is really interesting and one the one the the sort of the control group or the base you know contrast for his research was looking at indigenous societies where you know they're not fascinated they're not there's no arsonists in indigenous communities yeah. because they're using it every day right you know to right. to survive it's a tool so children are used universally fascinated by predatory animals in a similar manner in the same way that they're fascinated by fire. So that he's saying that there may be a biological imperative. There's an evolutionary, you know, pathway that's been mm-hmm. developed in us so that we understand that both of these things that we are fascinated by can be very dangerous. dangerous. So um, kids are naturally curious about animals are dangerous and which ones aren't. So they're also, every little kid is a budding pyromaniac. I mean, I, I say that jokingly, but it is fascinating because it's power, right? Sure. Like to take that little match and strike it. And or it's taboo because your parents warn you against, you know, stay away from the stove. Or exactly. And, and, and parents lose their shit. Like, right. get away from that. Get yeah. away from that. So, you know, in societies where fire is used daily, it is it is a tool, it is a means to, and every day, to work every day, the kids learn these answers, they learn that they learn to have a relationship with fire by the age of around seven. Okay. And it usually starts at around three where they can, you know, they're starting to explore their environment. Mm -hmm. They have a different relationship. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in the West, yeah, we don't have that. It's just taboo instead of having this respect and needing to know how to work with it. Right. He has this really great quote. He says, the motives that drive fire learning are only incompletely satisfied with the result that throughout life fire retains greater allure or fascination that would normally be the cause than would normally be the cause. I totally was not expecting that as yeah. we were doing the research. Yeah. I was not, yeah. ex- I was not expecting that there would be, Oh, there may be some kind of biological drive going on here for survival. Right. Right. So from there, you know, we talk about, now, if we, let's switch all the way back to just like pure concrete DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Pyromania is um, an impulse control disorder. Uh, it's it's in a class of disorders that we characterize by a word called impulsivity. And impulsivity is a failure or inability to resist a temptation. or an. It's the inability not to speak on a thought. And as I say that, I realize how much that applies to me. I have an impulse control disorder. 
Um, you know, a lot of disorders will f- have features of impulsivity, um, some substance-related disorders, which may move into or out of addiction, could be classified as uh, impulsivity or impulse control disorders. We've got behavioral addictions. We've got some forms of ADHD. Some of the hallmarks of antisocial personality disorder certainly will fit sure. into that impulsive that impulsivity uh, category when that certainly relates to the, the idea of um, pyromania mm-hmm. and arson. Um, so in the DSM, impulsivity would be characterized by emotional and behavioral self-control challenges. So if we look at, okay, how do I want to describe this? If we look at the cycle and a lot of things in understanding disorders or a lot of um, understanding of disorders is looking at certain cycles. So if we're going to talk about a cycle in an impulse control disorder, we're going to talk about five behavioral stages that um, go generally in this order. There's an impulse. There's a growing tension. There is a pleasure on acting. And then there's a relief from the urge. So there's basically we're building up to climax, right? Right. So there's a relief from the urge. And finally, guilt, Mm -hmm. maybe. That's that's the one where guilt, let's just say there's a real spectrum of guilt. And it may be. But a certain percentage will fill that. Yes. Yeah. But certainly not everyone. But pyromania itself is going to be characterized by impulsive and repetitive urges to deliberately starve those fires. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of studies um, that show, I mean, we've got more data now that we know what to look for. But historically, there hasn't been a lot of data. In fact, we're going to talk today about a movie that was made you know, right. regarding things that happened in the 70s and 80s. But other than that, there's not a lot of fire movies. I mean, right, right. And so when you talk about this cycle or kind of the um, the buildup of tension and sort of this anxiety and that the behavior, the fire setting, is the relief of that tension or anxiety. Right. It is similar to things we see like... Um, other impulse control disorders, exhibitionism, right. very much so follows that pattern of anxiety and they need to do it. And then once it's done, that um, anxiousness goes away. Um, what other, Well, with gambling a little bit, I don't have a ton of experience working with compulsive gamblers, but there's sort of that same buildup. Kleptomania. Yeah. Is, okay. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah, Kleptomania yeah. is a big one. Um you know, even using a completely different example would be going to that Lenore Walker's cycle of violence mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. there's a basically it's the same thing, a buildup of tension right. and then a release only in this, you know, unfortunately, someone's getting really hurt very right. badly in this particular right. example of release. But sure. I find that interesting because it's it's um, it's certainly indicative that there's something going on for people that don't have emotional regulation, maybe don't have insight or ability to tolerate difficult emotions that makes them more susceptible to mm-hmm. impulse control behaviors. Mm-hmm. And pyromania, I need to make sure that we state that it's distinct from arson. So the deliberate setting of fires right. for many different reasons. Arson would be deliberate setting for personal, monetary, or political gain. Um, 
pyromaniacs start fires to induce a sense of well-being or almost orgasmic euphoria. I mean, right. it, we really do akin that it to it's sure. a sexual excitement in a way. Um, and they, one of the things they'll do is um, pyromaniacs will also be fascinated by all the agencies that are involved mm-hmm. in the, the fire. The whole show of it, the, the whole it, response. It's like a circus to them. It, right, right, right. Right. So they're going to be waiting for the um, for the fire department to show up. Right. They're going to be watching each stage because they're mm-hmm. also, you, usually they're so learned about how this goes down. Mm-hmm. They're going to be watching for each stage. Oh, this is where this channel of air is going to cause an explosion. Oh, this is where, oh, this is where they're probably going to be able to pull those people out. And right. then they'll be watching the EMTs do their work. Right. And, Helicopters and news. And right. And they the use, community yeah. coming out. Sure. And interestingly enough, they some of the things that we touch on later is the idea that there's there's um, a huge association with firefighters, mm-hmm. whether or not. And you know, we'll be giving mm-hmm. an example today of a firefighter who was an arsonist, right. but they are fascinated with that job. And usually, it's somebody that could never right. would never be able to have that job right. for right. a number of reasons. Yes. Um, Thank God they have psych exams for that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. What about treatment for it? Uh, well, that's the other thing. I was look. I was looking at the data. Um, most of the cases in pyromania occur in children and teenagers, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we understand for for how they get there is, and we'll be discussing that because you had that table. But it's a there's a yeah. usually. Okay, there's some abuse, there's neglect, there's other characterological issues. And although I always hate to default to this, Mm -hmm. the stats show that it is widely influenced by the lack of a father figure. Yeah. Neglect by a father, absence of a father. You know, and I I like to stay away from that because I don't, you know, I, I... well, I I think as long as we stick with that and not the converse of like everyone who doesn't have a father figure exactly. in their life is going to exactly be which a lot of people jump to is sure, like oh everything sure. would be better if you had a dad in your life right. I'm like no, no that doesn't no. exactly Just work that way. Just a common thread with arsonists. This is what we're seeing, but, but I I think with but, the the impulse part, mm-hmm. I mean cognitive behavioral therapy is really it's the only that's the only thing right right yeah that's that's the only thing is is cognitive behavior. Um, so really learning how to pay attention to the the feelings associated with the tension when it comes up, what those triggers might be, and then implementing coping skills and alternative behaviors. Right. And I might just, okay, so what you just did, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very cut and dried, sounds very simple. Yeah. And right. on one hand it is because we know that it works, right? right? right. But we also know that it could take months to years just to get to part one of that. Oh, sure. Right. Sure. Even developing an understanding for what those impulses are, like, oh, yeah. especially for people that are, That's you know, half the battle. Yeah. Getting, getting in there and identifying that with them of what those triggers are and the associated feelings. So, yeah, that's, that's okay. the, that's the treatment. Um, the, there's more, information about gosh what is it oh most of the adolescents who've committed crimes uh of arson have committed crimes in the past 19 percent of adolescents with pyromania have been charged with vandalism 
18% are nonviolent sex offenders. Oh, yes, I did see now, that. Now, that number. was surprising that was really to me. Interesting. What did you do? You remember what you read about it? Because no, I, I didn't get much. Um, no, I, I think it was just statistical. There was nothing really linking it, but it just, I mean, to me, speaks to. Um, boundary issues and impulse control issues that are just being manifested in a wide variety of areas. Right. So like with, um, um, is it, gosh, rapists, uh, sex offenders who offend against adults. So generally like your rapists or, you know, sexual assaulters, um, they have a wide variety of criminal elements in their background. I think the one study I looked at, um, there's like 19,000 other types of offenses they've engaged in. They're just kind of that, I will offend against whomever or whatever. Right. It's just kind of part of their background. <laughs> I'm a general so opportunity offender. Equal opportunity offender actually is what I call <laughs> okay. it. Um, so I, I don't know if this is just, you know, a, a mini adolescent version of that. Um but it, it does. It just speaks to impulse control. So I was going to say that the one solid research thing that I came up with was really it was I'm not going to say really old, but 2001. I'm not I'm not particularly <laughs> comfortable with research right. that's you know 17 years old. Right. But um, uh, the researcher was saying that in adults, uh, the recovery rate is generally poor. Mm-hmm. And if an adult does recover, uh, it usually takes a longer period of time than the treatment for an adolescent. So. Yeah. It's, catch it early. Yeah, catch it early. It's not Which good. Which I think we do a good job of. I mean, people take it pretty seriously when kids and adolescents are caught doing that and right. I mean, I don't treatment for it. I hope so because it seems to me that there's going to be a need for a lot of differentiation as to what's going on. What's going on is a motivational yeah. um, behavior because another part of the research was talking about that there's a whole subclass uh-huh. that happens to use fire slash arson and it's purely for attention seeking behaviors. Oh, so okay. that to me seems, you know, that's all, that's another branch of treatment and approach sure. or un, not treatment necessarily, but understanding, right. you know, but it does tie into that, you know, neglect mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's um, what so I, I just was want to talk what about. Did you do? Just arson. What did you like, do? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Just hanging out. Um, so just I want to go over our criminal elements here in California for arson, just so we have those. Um, interestingly, arson is penal code section 451. <laughs> what does that make you think of? Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451. Which so, is, that's the temperature at which paper burns. Supposedly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. In in the book, that's that was the temperature at which books burned um, because the firefighter in that... His job was to burn books. Right. So anyway, in California, we have a sense of humor, so we made it Penal Code Section 451. Oh, they chose that. Okay. Um, so a, a person is guilty of arson if they willingly and maliciously set a fire um, that burns any structure, forest land, or property. So that basically covers everything, right? Um, they'll go to prison. It's a felony if there's any great bodily injury that results from it. Um, they'll also go to prison if the arson is set to an inhabited structure um, or property. 
and they'll also go to prison if it's um, forest land that they set on fire. So this, that's a lot of what we see, obviously, with these big ongoing weeks-long fires here in California. Um, if the burning um, is to that person's own property, it's not considered arson because right? oh. basically they've, you know, given consent, if you will, um, unless there's sort of some sort of intent to defraud um, or there's injury to somebody else or someone else's property. So you can set your own stuff on fire. Just make sure it doesn't jump into your neighbor's yard. Um, but I mean, I say that kind of like flippantly, but of course, well, you know, and, and I, you know, when you I can't was, just start fires in a lot of cities have codes against that. And I think, you know, there's, it looks like there's also flexibility in how far, I mean, that's a felony. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a serious crime. And I remember at the jail, we would get uh, people that were coming, I would be processing um, inmates through and I would see what the charge was. And if it was arson, and then you would see that their bail actually was really low. Mm-hmm. And then I'd look more into the details or I'd ask them, even when I was doing their, their eval, I was like, so what happened? And it would be, you know, a homeless person that's in a derelict structure that had started a fire to stay warm. Right. Right. You know, what's they, the intent? What's the intent sure. there? And But they'll start with the charge of arson. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But, it just has to be proved in court later. Exactly. Okay. And you can already tell, like, if they, if they give them a low, if it's, you know... $15,000 bail as opposed to $500,000 bail. It's like, right. oh, okay, well, we right. see how this is going to go. Yeah. And it's also the person was like, hey, I was just trying to stay warm. Right, right. Yeah, it's it, not necessarily anything we as a community need to be concerned about from um, a repetitive sort of impulsive right. or compulsive nature. True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. So, um, did you want to talk a little bit about our arsonists here, or alleged arsonist with the holy fire? Um, and then I can kind of dive into. Well, let's see. I'll give you some background too. Um, that was ignited on Monday, August fifth, and as that time, as of yesterday, over ten thousand acres. It was on fire, destroyed at least 12 structures, and it forced more than 21,000 people to evacuate their homes. And that was mm-hmm. by Thursday night. Right. Um, and then that also included, well, the Mendocino Fire Complex, uh, which was earlier this week. And that's the largest wildfire in state history. Mm-hmm. And the fire had consumed more than 305,000 acres in Northern California. Uh, that's about 476 square miles. 
or an it's expanse. As big as it's as the big city as of LA. Yeah. yeah, and it it went on nonstop for two weeks, and it's really only about fifty uh, percent contained. Yeah, and Cal Fire is already looking at it not. They're not even estimating it to be contained until next month, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. it's That's it's, crazy, it's like right? almost it's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. It's really hard to wrap yeah. your mind around. Um, and then the Car Fire uh, mm-hmm. has claimed about one hundred seventy eight thousand acres, and it's only about fifty percent contained as well. Right. So, so that's all what we have going on currently. Yeah. So welcome to LA. We are surrounded, and I think we say Mendocino, not Mendocino. I thought it was Mendocino because <laughs> they, they had that sand, the sandwich place, Mendocino Farms. So it's Mendocino Farms. <laughs> yes, it's Mendocino Farms. Well, no wonder she looks at me weird when I go, "Oh, I'm at Mendocino Farms." Uh, um, okay. What's um, the guy's name? I'm so pissed at him. I've blanked on it. <laughs> Um, so he's 51 years old. His name is Forrest Gordon Clark. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got to tell you, I saw him being uh, arraigned in yep. court. They played that clip uh, on KTLA. Thank uh-huh. you, KTLA News. Uh-huh. Um, it's pretty clear that he is a very disturbed individual. Sure. And that was, you can see from his behavior, um, whether or not there's an organic base for his behavior or he has a history of drug use, I don't know. But yeah. the background on him, they've been interviewing the neighbors. And this guy, this is someone, I mean, this is an interesting phenomenon from, a, you know, maybe you can shed some light on this from a law enforcement spec- mm-hmm. uh, perspective. But this is a, you know, a mountainous area. People actually live in cabins and right. sort of what we would say wouldn't, their homes, their cabin homes. People yeah. live there. They live there full year, like year round, uh-huh. because these are people that not necessarily low income at all. They just oh. like prefer to live in a little bit more of the wilds of or what would be a rural area. Even though you're really only thirty minutes yeah. from a major Tribuco Canyon's really nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, mean, I think of that, and I think of a. But this guy was not in so great of a space, and right. I think I don't know if it was a like a legacy family home or whatever. Uh-huh. But in interviewing the neighbors. They've been terrified of him for years. He has threatened people. He's he's gone just to the edge every single time, right. almost taunting people into altercations. Uh-huh. And um, you know, he. What I noticed interestingly enough is he had these two defense attorneys that were standing in front of the holding tank. And right. he was really ranting, like he was demanding to be uh, let out on bail, mm-hmm. and then was very angry that his bail was a million dollars. Right. Apparently, just you know, could not grasp that. And he kept uh, doing what we call mad dogging. He was mad dogging the People, camera. The camera. Yeah. yeah. He, like when he knew the camera was on him, and usually in the courtroom. Like that, the, the people can tell the camera is on them when it's directed at them, and there's a red light right. that indicates the camera's on. And he was mad dogging the camera, yeah. and the attorney kept attempting to step in front of him uh-huh. because she would look up, see that what was going down. Like, okay, this does not make my client look good at all. Right, right. Um, but back to you, what in a situation like that for law enforcement? Can you talk about? I mean, it's got to be frustrating because they probably. Well, especially, you know, the the piece where, you know, you said he was kind of taking it up to the, like, right at the line where this community is so frustrated about him. And there's not a lot you can do until someone crosses a line. I mean, there's only so much preventative community policing you can do. And then your hands are tied, you know, to 
still, I mean, I know we try to be preventative, but law enforcement is a reactive entity. Right. So you know, the, I know that. And by the way, and this is coming from about as a far left, you know, right. Libby, you, as, uh, I, here I am saying this. <laughs> if, if we were to go to the other side, of course, there would be people screaming. If you're like, well, no. I've he's called been, the cops this Like, time, let's be so. proactive. It's like, no, well, you can't do that right. because you have rights in this country. And even the threat that he sent out, mm-hmm. eventually, what, what did he say? He, sent out, he, uh, he texted somebody or called somebody last week and or he emailed. Well, he emailed and said, if you don't, um, did he say this? Hang on. I'm just looking at what I wrote here. If you don't do something, he's going to kill someone or burn something down. So I think that was a... Well, there was a follow-up. It was like, it, you're going to burn. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. he said this whole area is going to burn. So, um, but he did... Here's the thing from, a, you know, working with detectives and working with you as long as I've known you. Sure. He's saying, he's giving, um, he's setting up a scenario where, oh God, I'm blanking on the word for it. It is... Um, where it's like just vague enough where you can't. It's just vague because he's not. Make it a threat. He's not saying I'm going to set this fire right now. I'm setting this fire. He's like, right, it's not a if you threat. don't do it, it's going to happen. Which is right. just thin and vague enough. It's a vague threat. Exactly. Right. 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 So it's not going to fall into what we would call a criminal threat or a terrorist mm-hmm. threat, which is direct. There's a, a there's an identified victim or set of victims, and there is a very direct indicator of intent. Right. So he as as uh, I'm not going to use the c word <laughs> as altered as his behavior and or perceptions are, mm-hmm. he is at least high enough functioning to be able to play it. Sure. Right. He's manipulating. Yeah. He's angry. Yeah. He's obviously got some what we would. He's acting in some antisocial ways. He's exhibiting right. some behaviors. So you have the frustration of the community and law enforcement, and then you have this possible mental health issue wrapped into that. I mean, that's what you deal with a lot is like having to go out and follow up on these threats. That's like, yeah, someone really sees it as a threat, but is it enough to get you know other entities involved? But everyone's going to take it personally. I mean, can you imagine being the person living next door to this person? Oh, it's got to be hell. So it's got to be hell. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, he literally, you know, this fire started right there in his neighborhood. I've got so. a neighbor. My next door neighbor burns the nastiest sage in the world, and I, I'm all Just in, that is I'm terrible. all into that stuff. I'm all into sage, and like it's le- I'm like get him I, some good sage. Like I am trying to watch the strain, and you're <laughs> you're trying to smudge me out of the apartment. In this weather, I have my all my windows open. Come on. Oh God. <laughs> All right, so we're going to sort of shift gears here um, and bring in our element of entertainment um, into this topic. And so while we were on our break, we were actually contacted by an author who is releasing a book in June. So it's out there, and I'll give you all the information. Um, But that's kind of where this idea sparked. Well, it's also... Did you catch that? Um, I'm going to put some crackling fire noise just throughout. <laughs> like a Yule log? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we were contacted by Frank Gerardo Jr., and he recently wrote a book called Burned, Pyromania, Murder, and a Daughter's Nightmare. And what he did is he covered um, the John Orr 
fires and arsonists and collaborated with John Orr's daughter. And we're going to talk about John's. This is particular to Southern California. Uh, and back, it's, it's in Glendale, right? Where yeah. Most of, okay, so Glendale, California is northeast of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's basically a suburb. It's a beautiful, yep. beautiful little um, area. Kind of and, between downtown and the valley, yeah, if you will. Exactly. And um, so this is this is really sort of you know just a throw outside of Hollywood yep. where all this went down in the starting in the seventies. Um, Is it more 80s? 80s, 90s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, John Orr, before he was caught um, and identified, was known as the Pillow Pyro. So it, it, a lot of fires were set in these sort of linen or craft stores um, to material, like stuffing for pillows and quilts and things like that. So that's how he kind of got dubbed the Pillow Pyro over his reign as the most prolific arsonist um, in history, really. Yeah. I mean, if we look at it, we're talking like probably 2,000 fires. Oh, my. It's Um, it's staggering. Knowing that there were at least four people that were killed as a result of one of um, the more obviously devastating and just destroying millions worth of of property um, with these fires, but... Um, it's it's a really interesting story in that this the book is is great in covering sort of the the biographical background of this individual um, and the sort of twist to it all is that he was the chief arson investigator for the Glendale Fire Department. Yeah. So um, so it it's interesting. He t- I, I highly suggest the book for a couple of reasons. One, it's so, I, I know I've talked about this before. I love watching movies that are kind of backdropped in LA. Um, and the book is just does a really great job, especially sort of that same San Gabriel Valley where I'm from and, um, the, the communities along the foothills because this devastating fire that killed four people took place in South Pasadena. So these, you know, these are all areas that I've grown up around. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about that is, you know, LA being such a large city, Pasadena and Glendale, we have, we're a center, center of industry, especially Mm -hmm. textile manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, that stuff still goes on here. And there are, if you want to go shopping for like a really great bargain on a couch or a suit, you go to downtown LA and Mm -hmm. you go to the factories um, and you go to the, the warehouses and you are walking through kind of an amazing cornucopia of options that are really frightening because <laughs> you are in the middle of a warehouse that's right. stuffed to the gills with stuff. Yeah. Even when, you know, before stats downgraded, uh-huh. like when they they got when they were still like a huge or Michaels downtown, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like you're surrounded by just gobs of flammable stuff. Totally. And I never <laughs> thought of that until I started diving into this. I know. So it's your fault. Okay, thanks. But um I was really impressed as you were in the way he catches local color. He really captures Southern California, Glendale, Los Angeles in the 80s. Yes. I mean, he does a really good job of setting that up. I would say, you know, um there was a little bit of a, I had a problem with following it in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was a choice of his to be 
kind of a back and forth. Back and forth. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, Gillian Flynn and Gone Girl did a great job of that for for a fictional piece. But for a sort of a um, docu-historical narrative, it was hard to follow for me. But at the same time, I think he really captured something that we're going to be talking about, which is the psych makeup of this guy. Right. Right. Um, and we also will talk a little bit about the, there was a movie made, um, an HBO movie yeah. that is really great and really horrible at the same time. I mean, it's yes. great and awful <laughs> and we'll, we'll laugh about that. Yeah. Um, so when John Orr was the chief arson investigator, he was kind of that guy as arsons are breaking out, which are majority his, he was like the guy being interviewed on the news to kind of put the public at ease. Like um, for me, especially growing up in Southern California, everyone knows Dr. Lucy Jones when an earthquake happens, that she's going to be on television, that she's going to tell us, look, there's the main one. There was the aftershock. There's not another big one coming, you know, just like, okay, please talk to me, Dr. Lucy, because the difference here is that Dr. Lucy can't actually cause earthquakes. (laughs) True. (laughs) Or can she? she? (laughs) (laughs) And she's awesome on Twitter, by the way. Like I I adore that woman. I feel like she's my surrogate aunt from growing up around here. (laughs) But once what you're talking about is is someone that, you know, comes on media as a trusted person. You're looking at this person going, they're giving me the information I need to know. And we talk about that. I mean, like let's earthquake is a perfect parallel. Because you really do feel out of control and in danger. Oh, yeah. Same thing with, with these fires. So people were looking to this guy consistently. Yeah. And he yeah. even... And he was inserting himself there. I mean, he loved that. Well, he loved just it. talk about the psychological makeup. I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he... And even the ironic, the really sad irony in this is that, you know, you when you read the book, you realize he's the highest respected expert Mm -hmm. in this area. He's training other people to be really good. Right. But then he's going out and finding his own evidence. Yes. And holding it up. Like here, here's the point of origin. Yep. Here's the trigger, you know, holding it up. Everyone watching? Everyone looking at me. He's holding it with like a pair of tongs, you know, like trying to get people's attention. And he's the one, which also reminds me, I don't know. And I'm, blanking on her name, but there was this wonder dog back in the nineties that was like the corpse sniffing dog uh-huh. with the trainer. Uh-huh. And like they kept finding forensic evidence everywhere of mass burials, but it never quite they would find evidence, but it would never quite go through. And it found out that the trainer had was planted it. She was planting evidence. She had like in the cuff of her pants, she would drop uh uh DNA right. evidence that her that, that she would then direct the dog to. Wow! And it all f- fell apart. I mean, it's it's so sad yeah. that like someone's ego, right, just gets to a pathologically toxic level that, especially in Orr's case, mm-hmm. lives were lost. Oh god! At least in these other examples, it's like okay, I'm doing this for fame and fortune, but it's not hurting anybody's oh, life. Right, right. Um, so you know, there's all these fires breaking out stores. There's also um, some in some more rural areas. And when they start to sort of piece this together, it's because they see that there's this series of fires set between LA and like Central California where an arson conference is being held. (laughs) So they're like, hmm, interesting. 
like someone's literally driving up the road. And just setting fires. Setting fires. So then it happens again. There's another conference. There's a series of fires. And another fire investigator on this task force, This because um, the feds finally put together a task force, um, says, give me all the names of everyone who was at both of those. And John Orr's name is on that li- on both of those lists. Well, a lot of there's got to be a lot well, of commonality, yeah, think, though, right? Yeah, I think there ended up being I don't know a dozen or so names that were mm-hmm. on both, which I would feel like there would probably be more. Um, but so they they get these lists, and then they also end up getting a partial fingerprint at one of the scenes, and guess who it matches to? So. Um, I mean, talk about fantastic detective work just of, you know, putting things together, but then actually having, you know, the the, um, evidence to back it up was fantastic. But so they they get this fingerprint hit and they put him under surveillance and they're like, let's just watch him. You know, we'll be able to stop anything that happens, um, hopefully. Um, so kind of the the last sort of nail in the coffin, if you will, before they end up uh, arresting him is he actually starts a fire at the Warner Brothers Studios and starts it, goes home. The dispatcher calls him to dispatch him to it, but she gives him the wrong address. So and not on purpose. This wasn't like they set him up to do that. So he draw he drives to the wrong address and then drives to the right address without ever being corrected. And this is all under surveillance. It's not like he called and was like, hey, I'm here. There's no fire. He knew to go wow. to Warner Brothers. So that was kind of the last piece. So they they serve a search warrant on his home, arrest warrant, arrest him. Um, and they... They find, find a lot a of lot. stuff. Um, a lot of interesting things. Um, but probably the two biggest things were one... Was his manuscript of a book, a fictional book he was writing, which was basically a confession if you just put it all in first person. Which we could do a whole episode <laughs> about that. There's one of the most, you know, the the granddaddy of all the um, show. I think we've talked. Yeah, we talked in our first episode about City Confidential. There was an episode mm-hmm. about a woman who had, you know, brutally killed her husband in his sleep accidentally. And I'm doing air quotes when uh-huh. I say accidentally <laughs> because they were, they kept a gun under their pillow for safety and she accidentally, you know. Oh, yeah. And then, like, they saw that she had written a whole manuscript about it. <laughs> and it was, she was trying to, you know, to sell it to a bookseller. Like, that. that's a that's whole so thing in itself twisted. right there. Like, apart from what we're doing. And it's got to be... About ego. I mean, that, like, that's got to be narcissism, oh, right? Uh, yeah, the idea, completely. I mean, look at him. I mean, you got to say, like, the balls of, like, I'm, here's my route going between Southern California, yes. Central California, and setting, and nobody's going to figure it out. Uh, right, right. Yeah. So they, they find this manuscript, which has, you know, all of these fires, and then it also talks about the fire of the hardware store where the four people lost their lives. And so they put that together. And that ultimately is what he ends up getting convicted on. And um, he was up for the death penalty, but the jury was split. So he ended up with a life sentence. Oh, he's got four life sentences. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Four life sentences. Um, but you know, wasn't he, I know he was doing it with the pillows also. He had this thing where he would wrap 
a certain brand of cigarette. Right, to a matchbook. To a matchbook. With a rubber band. Right. And it would, was there a lighter? And the lighter would ignite the matches? Or is it like a... Uh, well, he would smoke a cigarette. He would was actually had the cigarette lit, and that would light the matchbook, which would then light the okay. material. Um, but wouldn't so? And I know he did it a lot. In you could the, smoke in stores back in the uh, right. Yeah, 80s. it's a very different time. <laughs> but didn't he also do convenience stores with Dorito packages? Yes, because Doritos. In fact, they they say like if you're going camping and you need a starter, uh-huh, that uh-huh. Doritos are so high in oil and delicious. By the way, Absolutely. Doritos. If you want to, if you want to send us like a whole box of those, <laughs> we're happy to have them. Um, they're very flammable. Right. And that was one of the, even before. The, save your life. <laughs> they started going, why are these, who, this guy is setting um, convenience stores because they were yes. smaller versions. He yes. started building up to the So sort of ones. these sort of little chip stands. Yes. That's where some of them were breaking out. I think that was some of his initial work. So. Well, and also, you know, just, uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I know I don't mean to be funny, but the idea we're so, you know, even about anywhere in the U.S. now, and I grew up during a time in the South where, you know, your table at a restaurant and the non-smoking section right. would be back to back with the table in the smoking section. Right. So what we don't realize, because we're so far from that sort of thing, is that you smelled it all the time. Right. So many right. people, it became part of your sort of all factory experience. Mm-hmm. So that you might not notice it when you walk in. Right. It wasn't until, I, I mean, I remember moving to Chicago in the 80s and then coming back to like a family reunion or something and driving through sort of a rural area mm-hmm. and walking through a restaurant to use the restroom and coming out and getting in the car and my mother going, did you, did you, did you a smoke cigarette? a cigarette? <laughs> I promise. So Mom. the idea that somebody could take a cigarette, a lit cigarette that's burning right. attached to a matchbook. Right. So that smell, it's like they wouldn't even notice it. Like, yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, if people he walks are, in people smoking, smoking it, it. Yeah. then... Oh, it must be still the smoke sure, from when he was doing that. Sure. So his book was called, um, or the manuscript was called Points of Origin, Playing with Fire. Um, and the main character was Aaron Stiles. He was a uh, firebug. Um, so a... Uh, a firefighter who set fires. Um, and so in this manuscript, he talks about creating these fires was more exciting than sex. Wow. And kind of talks about the theme throughout it is that there's this sexual excitement right. that comes with it. Um, so, and then the manuscript also talks about um, this character, this firefighter, committing rapes and murders and so it's like what else was he doing or not doing you know who knows um so they were just looking looking at the possible motive though of this sexual thrill from watching things burn because aside from the manuscript they also found vhs tapes of homes on the hillside and then just you know videotaping a home and then months later that home burning fire responding to it um so and i'm thinking again like the 80s there had to be this guy like standing on the street with this with giant huge, yes. vhs recorder giant on his shoulder thing. What? <laughs> you know this wasn't covert stuff so 
I'm going to, I want to jump ahead a little bit. Yeah, we'll, please, we'll come please. back to it. But so the HBO movie is done by, is stars Ray Liotta. Right. It's, it's also a, called Point of Origin. Point of Origin. It's, you know, 20 years old now. Right. About, um, and Ray Liotta, I think, is a very talented actor. I wish this movie was better, but... 2002. They do something very well in that they make him creepy. Uh-huh. Like, not, uh-huh. and his own daughter says, you're creepy. Yeah. And he has, like, the, the, the mustache that doesn't flatter his face right. at all. And sort of the, the like, flesh-colored you know, members only windbreaker jacket mm-hmm. and the, the glasses the and tinted all, glasses. although he's super smart, you know, you just realize like, Oh, this is a creepy guy. And then they talk about him interacting with people and yet, and yet he was having an affair right on his second wife. Right. Uh, and you know, and taking time away from his blended family mm-hmm writing this novel and setting these fires and doing his job. And you kind of get the sense that like, I wonder, it'd be interesting to read interviews with the people that worked with him. If even at the time, while they respected him for being an expert, that he was not seen as some kind of a creep. Yeah. What their vibe was like really just an ick vibe going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so prior to becoming, a firefighter, he wanted to be a police officer. So he went through the process with LAPD. Um, and he's former military. Um, and it's really interesting to read in Burned about his background and time with his first wife in the military and her finally getting tired of his crap and leaving him and sort of the womanizing and not being a part of family events and just kind of off leaving in the middle of the night to go play pool and just kind of some bizarre behaviors. Yeah. Um but he didn't pass the psych at LAPD. So um, hang on. I have a passage here. Um, so it, it, in the psychologist's report, um, they ended up talking about that there was an anxiety with him about relationship to women and authority figures um, and that he had really a problematic work history, um, including theft, but just not a stable work history. And aside, I think sort of like out of the military, just a guy that kind of floated around. I, when we look at work history, when I was doing assessments with sex offenders, that was huge because we want to look at stability and lack of stability in your work history speaks to impulsiveness. If you're going to say, fuck this job, I'm quitting because someone treated me badly it's indicative of not being able to adapt or work out problems or, you know, and, and at the cost of, I'm not going to have a paycheck tomorrow. That's pretty impulsive. So, you know, whereas I'm sure everybody has probably left a job once, um, maybe on short terms, usually people put in two week notices, yeah. they decide I'm going to have something else as a backup before I do this. So, um, they really kind of pinpointed that as, um, one of the reasons that they didn't take him at LAPD, but he was not happy with that. When he got that letter that he didn't pass, he was not happy. Did so. he, do you know, do we have any information on whether or not he appealed challenged it? it, appealed it? Was there any record uh, on that? I can't remember. I think there might've been, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the movie, it, the movie isn't. Well, can we, are we moving on to the movie now? <laughs> yeah, let's move okay. on to the movie. So, 
Because I kind of like think of like Color of Night that we talked about. Yes, yes. Okay, so uh, in a way, even though it's only, what, 16 or 17 years old. Yeah. um, Okay, hold on, i got to close this YouTube window because it's going to start. Okay, so I do want to talk about the movie for a second because it really, uh, what, it's 16, 17 years old, Mm -hmm. and yet it feels to me even more it feels older it feels it like does. an 80s movie because it's it's really cheaply made right and there's great people in it there's fantastic like Colm Fiore yes. Bai Ling who yes. I mean like I looking gorgeous uh, right. by the way but uh, oh Ileana Douglas uh-huh. who is an amazing actress and all of them do fantastic jobs as yeah. actors yes. it's just that the way the story is told do you remember a movie a few years ago with Matt Damon called The Informant? Yes. Okay, I think it was brilliant mm-hmm. because it's a true story about mm-hmm. a guy with bipolar disorder and a couple of other personality disorders, but he um, is also just a pathological liar. Right. And but a you know upper level executive for a company, and the way that they frame the story, and I understand that like nobody's life was lost as a result of the things that he, as the crimes he committed. But it was done in this lighthearted tone with this really great score that zipped you through the story that was unbelievable. And there were, so there were elements of going into the internal monologue Mm -hmm. versus what's actually happening in reality. And it was very, very well constructed. I think it was, it wasn't Robert Zemeckis, um, I'm blanking on who the director was, but it was great. So this movie didn't have that. Yeah. The guy... Um, Lots of potential. It could l- have. A lot of potential, but it veers into, like, one of the things that I think is is great, which probably everyone can relate to to an extent, which is the idea of when you are under duress or when you're in a frightening situation, even though your body is frozen, you have a fantasy of how you're going to address a situation. And Mm -hmm. some people who are dysregulated or pathological may have a fantasy of like, I'm going to get into this shootout with these police and I'm going to be this superhero that takes them all out. And what the director does is try and illustrate that the fantasy part, the fantasy part. And he does that several times. And it's a a couple of first couple of times. It's super confusing. The last time, is just laughable. Like it takes you out of the moment of like, Oh my gosh, we finally now know because I'm not giving anything away. I I highly recommend watching. (laughs) Obviously we told you who the arsonist is. You You already know, but um, watch it. It's on YouTube for free because someone has illegally uploaded it and changed the way they've gotten away with it is they've changed the speed of it. Yeah. So everyone's voice is way too high and fast, but it also shortens the watching. Yeah, it does. But the the thing that I um, was talking about, we have in the movie the arsonist who looks freakish. And then you realize later on it's because it is him. It is or, but they don't want to give it away. So they have they have Ray Liotta in really horrific prosthetics. So one of the things they do for the purpose of storytelling is that you watch scenes with him investigating and trying to put this thing together. And then you're watching 
in other scenes, the actual arsonist and the art, but he looks really freaky. And obviously we realize later on that, that Ray Liotta is the arsonist, but they've taken him and they put him in these bizarre prosthetics that look sort of stretched and melty and a bad Mm -hmm. wig and a bad goatee. And, and he's using a weird accent. And then a nice thing is that they blend it together at the end. It's like, it sort of fades in, but the last shootout scene is like... Oh, God, that's like, the one you're talking that's about. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, imagine, if you will, folks, close your eyes and imagine <laughs> crouching hidden dragon, crouching tiger hidden dragon, only with cops and, and a doughy middle-aged man. In a members-only jacket. In a members-only jacket with a bad mustache and glasses. And he's literally flying through the air. Flipping off of cars. Flipping off of cars, doing like triple horizontal somersault spinning as he's shooting everybody. This is the exact point where my husband walked in the room and he's like, what are you watching? Well, and, <laughs> and I couldn't explain and, it. And look, and I'm going to tell everybody if you can't, if you, if you know, if you can't tolerate watching the whole movie, if you search for it on YouTube, yeah. there's point of origin and there's also point of origin shootout. It's yes. just the shootout scene. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Weren't we just talking about that at lunch? Like fantasies you play in your head yes. in real life and then you cut to like just staring at the person talking. Um, <laughs> it, another book that I want to suggest that if you want to read um, uh, a piece of nonfiction about is called Fire Lover. And it was written by Joe Wambaugh and he's a former LAPD detective that worked Hollywood Division forever. Um, and he writes a lot of fiction uh, LAPD cop books. But he wrote a piece about this as well. So just some other resources for you guys. But let's go back to Orr for a second. Yeah, so sure, let's sure. let's just riff on the makeup. I mean, what we've talked about so far with the the underpinnings of arson is pyromania, which would be an impulse con- control disorder. Mm-hmm. That's not what's going on for Orr. Although he's getting some of the hallmarks, right? Yeah, because he's I think planning. so. When I talk about motive specific to firefighters, we could talk about right. that too. So there's this real, I mean, I think this is going to be our segue then. Yeah. Is he wants to be a hero. He wants to be a hero and respected so badly that right. not only is he willing to take people's lives and go to the hospital room of the two survivors mm-hmm. of one of the fires mm-hmm. and offer them consoling and how are right. you and I'm the one that, you know, figured out, we're going to figure out who did this. Right, right. Just kind of, that's so gross. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. But then there's also the idea that he, look, I'm going to make a, a parallel of when I'm working with infidelity as a marriage and family therapist, one of the things that you will find that can be a common denominator when people go outside the boundaries of what they've established as rules in their relationship, if they have affairs, if they're, is they're seeking attention. They're seeking the attention that they feel like they cannot get from their primary partner. Right. And certainly... You know, I'm not sure if the book covers this, but that's the way the the movie had portrayed it is his affair with the other woman. And like mm-hmm. he was a hero to her. He was a hero to his wife, even though she was frustrated because he wouldn't show up. And it really pissed him off yeah. that his teenage daughter was like, I'm not falling for your game. I yeah. know you're a creep. Right. Like, and how challenging must that be for her? Like, it'd be fascinating to talk to her. 
and see, you know, to, to realize not only the havoc and the wreckage that he caused, but that she got glimmers of it sure. when she was that age. Yeah, That's as an adolescent. potent. Well, and that must have been scary for him. Like, oh, she's seeing through my bullshit. Yep. Yep. I can fool all these adults. Right. So now I'm going to intimidate her boyfriend or I'm going to Im- impose like these really strict rules on her at, yeah. you know, at 15. Control. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, you know, in talking about him wanting to be a hero, I wanted to talk a little bit about firefighters who are arsonists. And I think that is what we sort of think of. And it's probably, you know, I guess thanks to John Orr being the most prolific example of firefighter who is an arsonist as well. But we kind of think of that as a motivator, that they want to be the hero. Um, And looking into the research, there's all kinds of motives. Um, And actually, they mimic more of what we see with other arsonists who are not necessarily firefighters. So I'll I'll go through those categories. But, you know, I want to be careful with this not just as the sister of a firefighter, <laughs> um, but to not mep- misrepresent a population. Oh, I mean, we're talking, you know, millions of firefighters, if we talk about both paid and volunteer throughout this country. Um, and really, we're talking about 100 a year get arrested for arson. So um, the frustrating thing in this research is probably the lack of it, because there's no official tracking system or database for this stuff. And I think it was just frustrating for me in in researching it that for every symposium or paper that's been proposed, they always say we need a tracking system for this and there's not no one's made one yet. So, you know, whether that gets folded into like the uniform crime report that the FBI does, which I don't even know if they track arson, I think that's something that's left out of there. Um but to be able to get better data on this. so um, Which is the problem when it's a small population. You know, uh, we we struggle to get the data we need for police. Right. You know, I mean, there's more and more every year, but like, yeah, we we don't have, we don't have decades of research in these areas that other areas of research might have. Right. right? Or even just criminal psychology. It's really hard to get information about juvies and women because- So many of them. You should say juveniles. Juveniles. Yeah, just so people know. Okay, okay. Because we can study adult men until the cows come home. I mean, that's the majority of people. So, um, so the reason this is so, um, I think, sensitive in a way is because when a firefighter does turn out to be an arsonist, there is such huge fallout with his colleagues and his department and the community. I mean, there has to be a lot of damage control done because... Well, the idea of these people that you're working shoulder to shoulder with, Mm -hmm. these individuals watching each other's back, you you know, even if you don't like someone in a situation like that, you have to trust them, right? right? And you have to be, you have to, they have to be able to trust you. So an incident like this wrecks that. that. It wrecks it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so firefighter arsonists don't fit neatly into one profile, but the, the idea is there are very adequate screening and psychological assessments done when someone wants to become a firefighter that it's not that 
arsonists are becoming firefighters, it's that firefighters then become arsonists. So it's sort of after the fact. Um, and there's a whole whole number of reasons. But what I want to do is is kind of um, talk about the profiles that two of the biggest studies have been able to come up with um, of what the firefighter arsonist might look like. And both this data mirrored, mirrored each other um, really well. So um, generally, we're looking at white males, which is probably the majority of firefighters anyway, <laughs> um, ages younger, so like 17 to 25 years old. And that's generally what it is. It's the younger population that's getting in trouble for it. Um, what you spoke to earlier, um, one or both parents are missing from the home during childhood. Um, but if it's if it is an intact home, the emotional atmosphere is pretty unstable. Right. So um, really disruptive or harsh or just kind of an unstable rearing in general. Um, and they, there were some flavors of overprotective mothers. Um, one of the parents, whomever is, is still home, if it's a one parent household, just, you know, has a lot on their plate. So it's a really cold sort of distant or aggressive relationship with that parent. Um, for the, this typology of person, if they're married, usually poor marital adjustment, um, if they're not married, they were generally found to still be living at home with their parent or parents. So, you know, that's interesting, having kind of this good career and... Failure to launch at yeah, the same time. Yeah, failure to launch. You are uh, one of your areas of expertise. Um, interpersonal relationships are really unstable, if they're at all. Usually they're they're just lacking a social support system. So, you know, that's that's kind of speaking to what they're like socially. Um, even though they are usually average to above average intelligence, Mm -hmm. they typically did really poorly in school. Okay. So So what does that say to you? Well, I'm going to make a huge leap. Yeah. Is I'm going to go back to what you were saying about females and authority figures. Okay. So females in authority positions are very threatening to them because I'm just saying that the majority of primary and secondary educators in this country are female. Sure. And so, authority figures. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're also, I mean, and that's not accounting for the possibility of maybe, you know, neurological wiring. If there's, you know, if there are learning disabilities involved, maybe that's part of it to an extent for some of them. But, you know, it's certainly think about this is like, if you don't have mastery in other areas of your life, what are you going to do to seek power? Right. And boy, this is the ultimate way to seek power, oh, right? Sure. Everyone Yikes. loves a firefighter. Yeah. They're they're the heroes, you know. Well, e- not everyone loves cops, but everyone loves firefighters. Well, they yeah, they also look <laughs> awesome. You know, you drive past the West Hollywood Fire Department, uh-huh. it's like all they do is work. I mean, yeah. they don't that's not all they do. They're they also no. provide very valuable services and they're EMTs as well. But damn, those guys work out a lot. They but they good. also sit in their easy boy chairs and eat ice oh, cream. Oh, you're saying because you're a cop. You're, <laughs> let's, that's what you're doing. No, because that's what I make fun of my brother for doing. Oh, right. He sent me pictures of the well, uh, 
yeah. lazy boys, not easy. And boys. I've seen the stuff that you that he you, that goes between him <laughs> and your husband too. Right. So the cop versus firefighter, they send some each other some pretty some and good burns. They sure do, and they each want to do what the other one's doing really deep down. I think. Oh, so. funny. <laughs> but okay, so um, well, just to get back to that sense of power, also. So certainly, you know, we're while these wonderful jobs, these wonderful career pursuits of, you know, firefighting and law enforcement are certainly, there's a a spectrum of people that are attracted to those. What they want when they're doing those psych evals is they're not necessarily looking for people that are going for a sense of power though. Right. Oh, sure. But some people are drawn to that and thank God they screen them out like, like they screened out or, but that's what an arsonist is doing. An arsonist is, Right. Going for a sense of power. I have control over when this fire starts and I have control over calling people to it. Maybe he doesn't have anything to do with mm-hmm. like getting the fire put out and he's, they right. probably don't think about the wreckage or how control, you know, the necessarily the consequences. But he also has a control of, you know, especially I'm thinking of him in front of the camera of making people feel at ease and right. you know, dealing with people's emotions and controlling that where. Let me comfort you. Yeah. Yeah. So turning to motives, um, yeah, I mean, there is that concept of wanting to be seen as a hero. They call that sort of vanity fire setting. Um, But there really is little to no concrete evidence about this being a motive. Uh, Most of the motives and John Douglas from um, the FBI's behavioral analysis, you know, from our mind hunters, um, Uh, Muse, um, in the crime classification manual that he and his colleagues published in 2006, they identified six motives for arson, which are still pretty much followed today. So that's um, excitement, vandalism, revenge motivated, profit, crime concealment, or extremism. So um, this is also, that, and that would be for like general population, um, but this is also echoed with firefighter arsonists. So the excited, motivated, uh, typology, if you will, is kind of what we would say, okay, if this person is a pyromaniac, this would fit into that category because right. it's the excitement derived from um, the uh, the fire setting as well as, you know, attention, recognition, and sexual gratification that can be wrapped up in there. Um, so this would be, you know, firefighter arsonists who seek recognition. They set and then maybe even discover the fires. Like, oh, I was just driving by and, you know, off duty. Well, that looks suspicious. <laughs> right. The last person to ever be with I just happened to be in the neighborhood. I just happened to be in the neighborhood and I jumped into action and yeah. pulled these kids out of this home. So, um, this is the 7 Eleven that has the Magnum bars that I like, not the one that's closest to my house. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, vandalism motivated arson. So, this is. Just kind of that malicious, mischievous fire setting that ends up resulting in damage to property. Um, this one they find to be more frequent frequent with civilian firefighters. I'm sorry, civilian fire setters than in the firefighter population. So um, this is kind of that category that I see as like the most common type: the kids, the adolescents, right. Um, Maybe they're just kind of seeing what will catch on fire, what won't, you know, just sort of this experimentation vandalism. Um, definitely knowing not to do it around people or something, you know, a structure, but they're playing in a field or a trash bin or something right. like that. Um, revenge motivated arson. So this is um, 
this is an area that I have an interest in, in terms of like threat management and um, risk assessment of who, what, who would be motivated to do this because they feel that it has to be in retaliation of, you know, some injustice, whether it's real or imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some sort of circumstance or event that they see as if they were wronged. And so they act out in a revenge sort of manner. And so arson can be one of those ways in which they act out. Um, there has been um, history of some firefighters who have been disgruntled and had these sort of perceived grievances where they have then um, they've actually set their own fire stations on fire. But isn't that different then? I mean, doesn't that take it out of sort of the parameters of what we're looking at? I mean, if you were to, if you were to look at a disgruntled firefighter who set their own station on fire, mm-hmm. would they necessarily meet the criteria of sort of the home family stressors, the failure to launch, inability to connect with others, or, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think what's different about this to address that is that it takes it out of like that individualist, you know, it's like this, this group, this mob mindset, you know, almost because it, it happens where several of them are in on it. So it's sort of this perceived grievance. You know, it might be directed towards fire chief in some cases, um, not getting paid well enough, whatever. Um, and they have this group mentality of this is how we're going to seek revenge. Okay. So, yeah, I, I think it's just a different category um, motive. Yeah, it's it's a motive for arson. Um, and then there's crime concealment. So, um you know, you, you set fire to destroy records of some sort of fraud right. or, you know. To, I've done that. If we're, well, oh, wait. Ooh, are we on? I'm recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, or covering up a body. You know, you can yeah. think of ways in which arson is. Which never works, by the way. Never. It never, folks, if you're going to do never. that. You never burn the body. We've no. learned that from forensics files because it yes. just never burns. <laughs> fire, like, it seems like the Fire sciences are so good. Except for, and this gets, I'm sorry, (laughs) and this is my weird sticking in, is um, the spontaneous combustion cases, which are so weird in the past, is like the entire body just spontaneously combusted and and, nothing else. Nothing, and there's a foot left. (laughs) There's like that happened. It's like, but it was always an overweight smoker. So they were saying that like the, the fat sort of acts as like a. Like the right. like tallow for a candle wick, but right. still, then the you talk about then you talk about you see they were some eating like, Doritos, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then there's somebody on one of these crime shows, and they're like, yeah, we were going to get rid of that body, right. and they like you know tried to burn it on a campfire. Oh, like <laughs> it just those bones and teeth didn't right. just magically combust. Oh, we can save that for some other episode. Yeah. Um. So yeah, crime concealment. I mean, there's been some cases of it with firefighters, but. I mean, clearly there's other stuff going on. Like there's this guy in Memphis in 2000 um, that murdered his wife and then lit his house on fire. So, I mean, that, that's a whole separate yeah. issue. It's not as if he's but a interesting, pyromaniac. But interestingly enough, like I, I don't know, like I'm not going to say without knowing anything about that individual, whether or right. not he had an impulse control disorder, but that was certainly an impulsive thing. I don't think there was any thought Right. You know, murder and right. burn down right. the house. That it's usually an, oh, is shit. not what planned. Do I do now? Yeah, right. Um, and then we have profit motivated. Um, so this is 
you know, either for monetary gain or to eliminate debt in some way. Um, there's even been it is the way that they find this with specific firefighters is that they need the overtime or need more work. So they would go out oh, setting fires. I know it's awful. That's terrible. Um, so there's, there's been some firefighters involved in that way. So, um, you know, usually we think of it as like insurance scams yeah. with, um, people who aren't firefighters. Um, and then the, the last one is extremist terrorist motivated arson. Um, do you remember, when the Hummers first came out, the the vehicles that the vehicles I had. Well, to, you're I'm looking sorry. at my face right yeah, I now. I like I loathe them, <laughs> and I loathe them. That I'm not an eco terrorist. I never set one on fire, but people were setting them on fire. Yeah, in in um, West Covina, they set a bunch of them on fire and destroyed a bunch of them. Um, but this could be anything from you know bombing abortion clinics or setting them on fire to slaughterhouses and. Things like that. Um, Which is motivated by a different, you know, it's, it's, you know, that is the act of terrorism that they use, sure. but those are motivated it's by... Social, political, exactly, religious, the, exactly those types of causes. Um, and there have been some cases where firefighters have been mostly like, oh, Alabama. Um, they have lit African-American churches on fire. You know, that's well, all. Yeah. You know. It's horrible. Um, it is. But, there, you know, it... Even though it's not a, a motive category, there's also this phenomenon in which they're just bored and they've done all this training and there's all this excitement and I've done all these things to become a firefighter. And, and now it's hurry up and wait. Now I'm sitting here um, cleaning the fire truck. And uh, I mean, even in day to day, I mean, I think about when I was a police officer, they're responding to medical calls. They're responding to... All sorts of things that are not fires. I mean, you know, they're because they are paramedics. I mean, most of them are cross trained as paramedics, and um, that's what they're doing. They're they're shipping people back and forth to the hospital. They're not fighting fires. So there there hasn't been a, a phenomenon of, um, again, sort of you know, two or more conspiring to, hey, let's go set a fire so we have something to respond to right. and practice with our training. Um, so it's, it's scary. I mean, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's good to know and really look at the numbers as far as, um, how few firefighters are really arrested for this. And yet it's, it's, it's shocking. Yeah, it is. In the way that it's, it's just shocking that like, where are, is the drive coming from? Is it coming from boredom? Is it coming from... Mm-hmm developmental is it coming from emotional is it coming from really impulse control right and yet even so here is what you have chosen did you choose it because of those things did you become did you did these um, desires emerge i think in, in some cases they probably emerge because i never you know they didn't emerge until the opportunity presented right. itself right well and that it, the way that they're addressing it um is really through education, like sort of um, training and education. Uh, see something, say something. You know, if you feel like one of your colleagues is off or complaining about some of these things and there seems to be a motive brewing to address it to uh, supervisors, um, but also education and training in, look, this happens. Um you may not even think about it until it happens. It's kind of like in, in police work, we call it the continuum of compromise, oh. um, where 
you know, there's the risk for police officers to make unethical choices. Oh, that's where the behavioral drift Re- the behavioral drift, comes in. Yes. Okay. Um, and that they say if you train them for it to expect, hey, you may be tested ethically, that they're more likely to make better decisions rather than just assuming that they're going to make the right decision. So it, it it's saying, hey, just be aware of this. <laughs> well, look, you know, you walk into a dope house and there's, you know, a ton of money. And does it matter if right. you know, just where those things are? There's a really tempted and compromised. There's a very famous um, case that has been put on record that is used when you work for the county. If you go and work at uh, as a deputy or you go and you work in the jail, mm-hmm. they have this this whole sort of mini documentary that you watch. And it's about a young man who became a sheriff's deputy. And I think I may have even mentioned this before in, in some of our previous podcasts, but he was straight up straight shooter. He had always wanted to be a deputy. Family was so supportive of it. He aced the tests. He aced the training. He was the star of the training. Mm-hmm. And but what happened was is that he didn't immediately go to the streets because none of the deputies go to the no. streets. They become jailers right. for sometimes up to four or five years, which oh, is incredibly gosh. frustrating. It was but, seven years when I went to the academy, the people I was graduating with. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a long Because there was a time. hiring freeze. Because that's not what they're going in for, no. right? You know, they don't... That's, they don't want to be babysitters. Exactly. And they don't want to deal... Certainly, you know, the intensity that comes with it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he gets put on... Um, Early AMs, he's at a North County facility, which is a general population, and he gets totally manipulated by mm-hmm. one of the inmates. And before you know it, he's running drugs for the guy. Jeez. He never intended to do that, but the, the drift happened. Right. That compromise. Oh, completely. You know, and it happened. happens just little baby steps at a time. It's not a huge, like, a huge ask of, you know, jumping into some criminal conspiracy with uh, an inmate. And also there's, and there's one part that we haven't touched on as far as typologies. And this is a probably, I would hope would be the most rare, but that sometimes this, the pyromania comes from basically borderline psychotic Mm -hmm. symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I've run into a couple of those, uh, working in the prison, working in the jail where I'll ask, you know, why did you set this? Well, God told me to, Yeah, I am, I'm, I'm I was sure. supposed to, I was supposed to purify this area. Right. And this is somebody that has a history of psychosis and they're really, they really do believe it. Right. And for those of you, I mean, a great example of that, that I think um, was portrayed very well in literature. If anybody is into horror literature and like Stephen King in his book, the stand, mm-hmm. one of the recurring characters that has their own chapter um, is a psychotic arsonist. arsonist. And in this post-apocalyptic world, he finds ample opportunity. You know, he's not looking to see the firemen come. He's just looking to see the pretty flames dance yeah. and to clap like a little baby, clap like a little kid when he sees um, oil tankers explode that he's wow. set bombs for. Well, what about start, start, starting fires with your mind? Oh, another Stephen King. <laughs> I know we got to get. Uh, we'll have to get uh, Drew Barrymore on and ask. There her you about go. That. That'd be so fire amazing. starter. Yes. So I'll I'll throw a ton of references up on the um, website as always, in case you guys want to dive into this a little bit further. But just felt like a good time to cover this topic. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Pretty. Um, 
poignant and salient and timely right now. Mm-hmm. Um, to take it back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, we had like just an amazing um, breakfast this morning with Holly Weird Paranormal, uh, and we are so excited to be collaborating on a couple of projects with them. So please keep following us. Um, send us your ideas. Reach right. out to us on Facebook. Give them a listen. Please, give, please give them a listen. They're, they're hilarious. hilarious. <laughs> Follow they're, them on Instagram, um, please. The, their dynamic <laughs> is, is just lovely, and I really like it. And we're going to be doing something with them. We've already talked about this. One of our episodes where we do a crossover, we're going to do it live on Facebook. We would like to. Which we're very we'll Let us know about. what you think about that, if yeah. you would be interested in watching it at all. So thanks so much. We're going to see you very soon. We promise. We promise. No more apologies. No more apologies. (laughs) On our next episode of LA. Not so. Confidential. Have a great evening, folks. Take care. Bye. Bye.